Well, as most of you are no doubt aware, uh, we recently had a census just in August this year gone. In it, the Australian government asked every household for a series of uh, uh, questions um, to inform them. And it aids the government in knowing about its citizens. So if you would have read the census that I filled in, you'd find out that there are five people in our household, that we live on a very sweetly named street, Honeybee Crescent. Poor pun, I'm sorry. You would have learned our religion is Jedi. No, you should fill it out properly, Christian. Um, and censuses, they're not a new thing, nor are they unique to Australia. They've actually been around for almost as long as history has. Famously in the Bible, it is a census that brings Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem, where Jesus is born. The book of Numbers takes its title after a census of a kind, and really, looked at in a a certain way, the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles also function somewhat in this way as a type of record-keeping for the nation of Israel. So it's a bit odd then, as we come to chapter 21 of Chronicles, that David takes a census and it is shown to be a great sin and worthy of severe and immediate consequence. Why is this the case? What's so wrong about counting your people? Perhaps in the census I should have answered, I don't know how many people are living in our house. Or maybe it's not the same. In fact, thinking a bit further, from what we've read of 1 Chronicles so far and the account of David's reign laid out in it, you could well ask, why is this accounting here at all? What is this chapter doing? 1 Chronicles is a kind of a highlight reel for David. For example, there's nothing of David's sin with Bathsheba. And there is a reason, of course. The chronicler is looking back, reminding Israel of how good it is to live rightly under a good king, as they come out of exile and look forward to once again being God's people in God's place under God's good king. So this chapter is a strange deviation within Chronicles that highlights David's foolishness and that foolishness of all things is taking a census. So what's going on? Well, we come to verse 1 and it starts quite strange. The, The chapter begins with Satan inciting, or that's stirring up, David to take a census of Israel. And there are a couple of things this could mean, but there are two worth noting, I think. Like what we see in Job, Satan acts for what appears to be evil, but only so far as God permits. In fact, in it's quite interesting, in the matching account of this chapter in 2 Samuel 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel, verse 1 actually begins saying, the Lord incited David to take the census. And the takeaway in both is to say that God is in control. Evil can only act as far as God allows. But there's more to it. What did Satan inciting David look like? Well, it seems likely that in verse 1, we are getting a theological understanding of David's motives for taking a census But we can also see that it matches with, potentially, a physical historical form. We actually see this a bit later in the chapter with God's angel of judgment, which is also seen through the plague. So I apologise for getting a bit technical here. I don't know Hebrew myself, but the commentators say the word the Satan here is accompanied 
in the Hebrew by an indefinite article, which is to say an A, rather than a definite article, which is to say the. And this is unusual, particularly when referencing Satan, the deceiver and accuser. And so it seems likely that it was a kind of Satan that incited David. A kind of Satan such as an earthly enemy. So most likely commentators agree that David was not actually just interested in a general census, but in determining how much military strength he had, and it was done within the context of nearby pressures. A human enemy, probably a nearby nation, was threatening, and David felt pressured into numbering his army so he could assess his military strength. This is strengthened as we read further on in the chapter, We see Joab's response in verse 3 of, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundredfold. And in verse 5 we read that it is only the number of fighting men that was reported to David. And although in verse 1 we read that the census was to include all of Israel, which is what it means by, sorry, in verse 2, all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, Um, we see that Levi and Benjamin were not actually included in the numbering. They were left out of the census as the military commander Joab found the command repulsive. The tribe of Levi was the tribe of priests and they were excluded because they were exempt from military service. We read about in Numbers 1. And Benjamin, it seems, was left out because the tabernacle where God dwelt was located at Gibeon in Benjamin. And Joab was, rightly as we see, fearful of God's response. Now, the narrative does not give us an explicit reason as to why a military census of this kind was so deplorable. There are things that point to us. For starters, again in verse 3, Joab replies, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Joab was David's right-hand man and military commander, and he was right. Skipping down to verse 7, we read that this command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. So what was the problem? Really, there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, it seems that David took the census in a way that broke God's law. Back in Exodus 30, we read that it is permissible to take a military census as long as it included a ransom offering for each person. And this was where each man was to give an atonement offering before going to war, considering that in war, death and the taking of life, although not glorified, is inevitable. The taking of a life of another required life for life. So it's a precautionary atoning offering. But there's nothing of this. David does not do it. And as we've already heard a few times in our look through Chronicles, I think it goes to show that David has forgotten the army and the battle is indeed the Lord's. We need to come to God on his terms, not on our own. And secondly, well, David forgot that the battle is the Lord's. His motives were clearly very wrong. In taking a military census when faced with opposition, he was showing that he believed Israel's security 
lay in military strength rather than in God. How many stories are there in the Old Testament where God led his people to victory in otherwise impossible situations? We've seen some in Chronicles already. David and Goliath is an obvious one to start with, but there were loads. And this really is a complete reversal of the confidence that the battle is the Lord's. The trust that David has has stopped being in God and started being in his army, in his military might. What a contrast this is to what we heard last week, where in chapter 17, God promises to establish David's line forever And David's response is thankful trust in God. If you remember back to chapter 17 last week, in verses 7 to 10, we see what God says to David. And just listen to the language here. God says, I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies. I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. I will provide a place for my own people. And then down in verse 10, I will also subdue all your enemies. Looking further back in Chronicles, the refrain that we hear from David's conquest time and time again is the Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave him victory. But now, in the face of opposition, David turns to his army. He forgets that it is God who gives the victory. God's people and God's king are to trust in him, not in their own strength. And this is... A serious sin. Although, of course, our situation today is very different from David's, I think this is a a challenge to us as well, isn't it? We love to count just as much, if not more, as any other generation. I think a great example at the moment, it's hard to go past, is every day at 11am, we hear lots of statistics and numbers. 1,400 new cases, X amount of new deaths, Maybe our hope is in this as it goes down, or maybe if it doesn't and goes up, it drives us to despair. There's another number, 70% full vaccination. That's what our state leaders are striving for currently. And this is great. High vaccination rates are a good thing. They result in greater protection of the vulnerable in our community and ourselves. But is our faith and trust in these changing numbers, or is it in God, the author and sustainer of life? I guess this has broad applications for churches too. There's a pressure or an inclination to measure success by the number of people who attend. But again, we mustn't forget it is God who gives the growth. And there is great danger in worrying about numbers alone. Of course, wise stewards will work hard Using statistics is helpful, of course, to make sure that they are ministering effectively and caring for everyone. But our trust is in the Lord. The examples and implications are many, I think, but the overarching idea is that forgetting God's sovereign control, relying on ourselves, it can only lead to pride or despair or even both. Believing yourself is the mantra of our age, but if it isn't one of the most harmful mantras, well, I'm not sure what is. And how do we make sure that we don't make this mistake? Well, going back to chapter 17, I think David's problem was that he forgot God's promises. And that's what we mustn't do. Don't forget God's promises. 
This is seen in, I think, particularly Psalm 78. In it, David the author summarises the rebellion of Israel against God despite his goodness to them. It outlines how God was the one who delivered them again and again. Ironically, David wrote the Psalms, but yet he too at times forgot God was the one who delivers. Back to 1 Chronicles 21, we see how serious it is to forget this because the punishment is severe. In verse 8, David recognises his guilt. And note again that although in verse 1 it is Satan who incites David, David is responsible for his actions. He's not excused here. And David rightly takes full responsibility. And further, God is not unjust for punishing all of Israel for David's sin. It's easy to think that as we see the chaos to come, but both 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24 indicate in verse 1 that Israel was not free of sin, and further King David was representative of his people, and like in all things, for good or ill, his decisions impact not just him, but everyone. So in verses 9 and 10, God speaks through the seer, which is another name for a prophet. And through Gad, David is given a choice of three punishments. I'll read them for you. Three years of famine, three months of devastation by the swords of your enemies, or three days of the sword of the Lord. And David chooses the third, since he would rather fall into the hand of God who is merciful than that of famine or foes. And this is a sign of true repentance, I think. He left it all in God's hand and did not seek to determine the way that might have seemed easiest for him. He now trusts himself to God. Well, it does come, the consequence, 70,000 die. And we read in verses 14 and 15 that it is through a, a plague and an angel. And as the judgment comes towards Jerusalem, we actually see God relents. He commands the angel to stop and importantly Jerusalem is preserved. And upon seeing this angel we read that David begs God to punish him and not his people and he cries out in verse 17, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I the shepherd have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord my God, let your hand fall on me and on my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. David here offers himself as a sacrifice for the sake of his people. He asks for God's punishment on himself rather than it continue on Israel. And let's just bookmark that as we read what happens. We'll come back to it. Because David's repentance here, it leads to a significant sequel that I think is a key reason why the Chronicler includes this story. And that's point two, the place where the plague stopped. I think it's important where and how the plague has stopped here. As I've said, the Chronicler here has used 2 Samuel 2 extensively, but in the Chronicles account, there is great importance given to something that in Samuel the chapter doesn't dwell on as much, and that's this next section. In verses 18 and 19, David is told to build an altar on the threshing floor where the judgment stopped, and he does. Verses 20 to 25, 
recount how David came into possession of the threshing floor. But to summarise, there's Aruna, who's a Jebusite, who from his response to David, from his offering, uh, and also from how he addresses David in the Samuel account, seems to be one of those who's not a part of Israel, but is nevertheless faithful to the God of Israel, who understands uh, who it is. And he offers to gift the threshing floor to David, as well as everything needed for the sacrifice. But David refuses and pays full price because, in verse 24, he insists on paying full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Verse 26, David offers burnt offerings and fellowship or peace Offerings, which we heard about a couple of weeks ago, these offerings were the main sacrifices for substitutionary atonement. That is to say, the sacrifice of the beasts was accounted as paying the penalties for the sins of the people. And we see very clearly and obviously that God accepts it. In verse 26, there is consuming fire from heaven, showing God's acceptance and approval. Israel is delivered and David has not had to make good on his offer to give himself up for his people. Just like Abraham's sacrifice on Mount Moriah where Isaac is spared, God again provides the sacrifice. And note the order here, it's important. It is God who stops the judgment and then the altar is built and then the burnt sacrifice is approved and made by God himself, and God himself is the one who accepts it. Building the altar here, or even a temple, does not secure God's mercy. It is a provision of mercy. The mercy comes first, and God even allows David to live and accepts the sacrifice of animals. This is not to say that the sacrifice is useless, though. By no means it's necessary, and it is not until after the sacrifice that the angel sheaths his sword in verse 27. And of course, on this side of the cross, it is clear in the New Testament that the Old Testament sacrifices were but shadows of the one true sacrifice to come in the crucifixion of Jesus. At the end of the sentence, when the people are under God's judgment, God's judgment is averted by sacrifice made at the place of sacrifice. Many years later, Jesus would die in Jerusalem, completing the work of atonement and defeating Satan once for all. The temple curtain would be torn in two and the cross is the place where divine wrath and divine mercy meet. So this passage here clearly anticipates Christ. We know that even if David did sacrifice himself, that doesn't solve the problem of human sin. As we've seen this evening, he too was sinful. Only Christ, who is both man and God, the word became flesh, could be this offering. And it is God again providing what we need the most at the cost of his own son. Christ was the one true offering for sin, whose sacrifice conquered death and satisfied God's wrath. And Jesus' sacrifice was shown to be acceptable in his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. And this is the King and Lord who we put our trust in. How foolish it seems to trust our own feeble efforts or strength or will, our physical power, 
When we follow the one with power over all the forces of evil, with power over death itself, who rules on high, the battle is indeed the Lord's. Chapter 1 ends a little bit strangely. It mentions the tabernacle and the altar were at Gibeon, but that David was still afraid or terrified of the sword of the, the Lord's angel. But as we look onto chapter 22, verse 1, uh, I think it brings this section to a conclusion. 22, verse 1, Then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here, and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And that's why here, 1 Chronicles is so concerned with the kingship and the kingdom and God dwelling with his people. We've seen the temple promised, and here at the threshing floor, was to be both the house of God, the place of the ark representing divine grace and also the altar representing human response. God will dwell with his people and in responding to David's sin, God affirms his promise to them that he won't leave them. Well, in the first half of the chapter, we see distinctly human tendencies, I think, a desire to seek earthly security, to find safety in comparison or the numbers in our bank account, earthly gifts and talents. We see a turning away from God and a forgetting of his promises, things that lead to pride or despair, to judgment, ultimately. But in the second half of the chapter, we see God's overwhelmingly gracious response. We see the mercy of God as he turns aside his righteous wrath, We see the place that the temple would be and where God would dwell with his people and we are pointed towards the cross where God offered himself as the atoning sacrifice once for all to make us right with him for eternity. Praise be to God.